relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Courage, manhood. It's kind of easy to philosophize it, put it into an abstract context, the historic context. But what about now, today? What does it mean to be a man and to have courage? I think we have the perfect guest to answer that question over the next hour. Um, I don't think we've actually met physically, but I consider him a personal friend because He's a great patriot, former special agent with the FBI for the Manhood Hour. Kyle Serafin, welcome to America First. Thanks for having me on, Dr. Gorka. It's always good to see you again. It's great to see you. And at this occasion, we have a little bit longer to discuss. It's a real luxury. We're going to deep dive on some big, big questions. So first things first, um, we can talk about your story of late a little bit further on in the hour. But let's start with your choice. What made you decide to become a federal law enforcement agent? Talk to us about Kyle Serafin's background and his journey to Quantico, to the, uh, the special agents course, and then picking up that badge and those credentials. I think it goes back further. I think it goes back to probably when I was about 25 or 26, and uh, I'd worked a bunch of different jobs. I'd managed a restaurant. I had worked in sales. Um, I had come out and sold airtime and computers and ergonomic furniture, and I was looking for a place where I fit in the world. And somewhere around 25, 26, I started meditating on what I thought it would be that I would be doing if I was alive 10,000 years ago, and I lived in a small tribe of people. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are you taking the mickey, or are you actually serious? I'm serious. This is exactly my thought. Okay, so I, first, how did you get to that question? Because that's not I, exactly an everyday question, Kyle. I'm I'm kind of an odd dude. So I, I don't know. That was just kind of where I ended up. I started off thinking, um, what would my eight-year-old self be happy with me doing with his life? That was something that someone had presented to me, probably in a bar for all I remember. And then I thought, well, I don't know, like I've owned motorcycles and, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking to be a dad one day, but I, I'm not creating or destroying anything. And and that felt like that was what men do. They create things or they destroy things on purpose to to help others. And so I thought, well, 10,000 years ago, I would have been the guy laying in the grass waiting on a buffalo for three days or making sure that the enemy didn't kill the women and children in my village. And so I got to figure out how to do that. So that's not why I enlisted. I was 27 years old. I was the oldest guy in my basic training flight. And uh, so that was kind of the that was the beginning of it, if you will. So what, and then what, I did, what did you enlist to do? So I started off to be a combat controller, which is a special operator in the Air Force. Um, uh, explain, I went a explain, bunch of training. Explain, explain the easy job a combat controller does. So it's super easy. They parachute or dive in. Um, they set up an emergency airfield. They land like a team of Rangers, or they are forward deployed with SEALs or uh, Special Forces guys. And they're the ones that are actually calling in the targets, the eyes on the ground for the pilots. 
and they either walk in artillery or they're, they're called joint terminal attack controllers. Let, let me uh, be clear. This, this, this is actually, people need to understand, you're on the battlefield. You're behind enemy lines and you're calling in the massive explosives uh, to a vicinity not far from where you are located. Sometimes the guys are actually calling them in on their own position. Now, to be fair, I didn't ever put on the hat. I got probably 95% of the way through the training to get there and just about died at Fort Bragg in training. I had a body temp over 106 when I was doing land navigation, which shut me down on that field. And so I kind of was looking around and thought, well, okay, I've been in the Air Force for 17 or 18 months, and they offered me an opportunity to, to leave. I could have left with an honorable discharge, probably administrative at that point, or I could take any job in the Air Force except that. And so I said, well, you better send me to pararescue school. So I turned around and entered either the harder or the next hardest, depending on who you ask, uh, field that the Air Force offers. And I became a paramedic and I went through all that training and I basically sat around and this is was my first introduction to government. I sat around with a a uh, training in being a combat diver. I was uh, airborne qualified at the Army. I had gone through SEER school and survival. I'd gone through water egress. I'd gone through EMT and paramedic training. And I was the distinguished graduate of my air traffic control class. And so I was an air traffic controller. I could sit in an FAA tower right now and spin up on an airspace. So I had all these, these certs and uh, no ability to go do my job because the Army didn't have a spot for me to go do free fall, which is the, the halo school. That uh, explain about. for a second, because, you know, pararescue is one of the most elite of the elite, and most people have never heard of it. So before we get to the next iteration of your career, explain what the job of a pararescue guy is. A pararescueman is a forward deployed medic that goes into special operations facilities and or uh, mission sets, rather, and grabs downed airmen, air crew, or operators that are in places where they otherwise would not be accessible. Uh, a lot of people have had their lives saved by pararescue men over the years. They got their big debut in Vietnam, and there's a lot of silver stars on the wall from men that put them lives on the line and went and saved people that nobody else would have gone in to get. They parachuted in, like I said, they swam in, uh, and they could theoretically also deploy with special operations teams and be a medic for that too, but they're kind of the premier rescue assets for the, for the DOD. Good. All right. So you've got all these qualifications, but to be a pararescue guy, you've got to do uh, parachuting. You've got to get qualified. What happens next, Kyle? Yeah, so I, was, I finished my static line with the Army, but I couldn't get the, uh, the military free fall. Actually, and all the dumbness that is the, uh, the U.S. military, I went to Fort Bragg. I was in the class. I stood up and lined up to go to free fall school, and a doctor, who I believe was a colonel at the time, uh, looks over my medical packet, and he finds my second-to-last physical, not my most recent one, and he finds that someone didn't write the 20 on the blank line showing what my near-visual acuity was. It was 20-20, but they didn't have anything. It was 20-blank. And he said, someone failed to accomplish your near visual acuity on your second to last flight physical. And so you've been disqualified from this. Now, the trick is, is if they can disqualify an Air Force guy from going to free fall school, then a, uh, a Green Beret, a, a special forces guy who's sitting outside who wasn't on the list gets to take my spot. And that's right. what exactly what happened. Me and three others went back home. And, uh, and then I wrote out my enlistment, just kind of waiting for that spot and uh, ended up uh, separating from the Air Force honorably without being able to accomplish that training. So I never got to deploy, which I thought was actually really frustrating. That was the war that I thought I was going to. I didn't realize I was actually going to do the war here for uh, for America's soul in some ways. How how sour uh, an experience was that, that you did all of these things, got so close, and then they wanted the slot for another guy? How, how did that leave you thinking in terms of service? 
It's frustrating and it just kind of illustrates the point. I mean, they spent about a million dollars training me on all the different schools and the TDYs and the equipment and stuff that you go out there and do. And so I spent a lot of time, a lot of time in my life at 24 to 31 thinking that I was going to go do something and deploy into a war zone and, and what I thought was going to be the mission that that God had in hand for me. But that, that didn't turn out to be the case. You know, I look back at it now, and I think that God's plan is always visible in the rearview mirror. In the moment, I was clearly frustrated, but it didn't stop me from actually pursuing. I was looking at going to an officer position in the Air National Guard, which would have been in Texas. And then, um, you know, like I said, God has other plans. I put in a packet with the CIA. I put in a packet with the FBI, and the FBI ended up offering me a position, although it took two years to get to it. Um, I ended up on a different path. So what are you doing in the two years in the in, in the interim? Well, I went back to school. Uh, I was a 31-year-old college graduate who was taking additional classes to refresh. I thought I might go to medical school. I thought I might go to become a PA. And I was working in a hospital, and I worked on an, uh, on an ambulance. So I spent some time doing EMS transportation as a paramedic and training other paramedics. I spent time saving lives and, um, and continuing the spiral for people who were in bad shape that were uh, in the emergency room in Austin, Texas uh, at St. David's. And so I did this kind of stuff and, you know, uh, ended up getting married at the same time. So all these kind of things happened at the same time. I did, it was it was a kind of a weird transitional period. You look back and you go like, uh, I don't know how I did all that nonsense because I was in school for three semesters as well, trying to get these prereqs knocked out to go to school. And, and then none of it mattered because I went to the FBI. All right. So you start with the FBI. Is there any law enforcement background in your family? No, not to my knowledge. I guess I've got some cousins that have worked in some federal jobs that maybe um, Federal Protection Service or something like that, but nothing in my immediate family, certainly not, and really no military service in my immediate family either. Wow. So tell us about uh, the Yellow Brick Road. Tell us about uh, the training to become an FBI agent. Well, how, how did you find Quantico? So I had gone through some really aggressive training, and Dr. Gorg, I got to be totally honest that when I got to Quantico, I wore the most what I would call smokable suit. I thought I was going to get dropped on my face and push-ups and flutter kicks the way you do when you show up to a new unit in the Air Force on the sort of the, the side of the uh, Air Force that I worked on. And that was the exact opposite. There's like this heavy set, you know, black lady handing me a folder and says, go have some lunch and we'll see you in a couple hours and, you know, show yourself around the academy. And I'm just waiting to get hit in the face the whole time. And <laughs> that that was kind of my experience at Quantico. The first week was a letdown. And then it all kind of was that. The, the thing that everybody assumes when you go to Quantico is that you're getting a lot of uh, elite training and you're going to have elite people teaching you. And I don't think that's the case. I think the legal training we had was very good. A lot, a lot of classroom training, right? You're, you're, not, you're, you're not jumping out of planes, you're sitting in classroom. A lot of that. And then the second piece of it is, is that everybody thinks the tactical is going to be a big chunk of it. And what they do is they would go, here's how we do our tactical entry. Now go do a tactical entry. And now you're going to get graded on it the second time around. Ooh, so it, you know, it, it's kind of ugly and it sets people up for not a lot of time and a lot of reps. And that's, so that's, that's why you see SWAT doing a lot. That's not good. Uh, we could devote another hour to your experience at Quantico. We're talking to Kyle Serafin, host of the Carl Serafin Show. The website is Carl Serafin with a P-H, carlserafin.com. I'm Sebastian Gorka. This is The Man Who Dow coming to you from the relieffactor.com studios. If you like the deep dive, if you like The Man Who Dow, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on all the usual platforms. Plug in my name, Sebastian Gorka. Leave us a five-star review. Share the links with your friends. And if you stand against the political persecution of the 45th president of the United States, check out all the Trump 2024 gear at sebgorkastore.com. Back after these messages. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. 
we have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Whether it's the regular Hellcat or whether it's the compensated RDP with that miniature red dot, I love a ball. How did it take so long to invent a factory compensated subcompact 9mm? Well, guess what? Springfield did it, and I'm a huge fan, and I'm Sebastian Gorka. The Hellcat from Springfield Armory is still the smallest, highest-capacity micro-compact in the world. Available in standard or optics-ready configurations, class-leading capacity of the Hellcat gives you 11 plus 1 with the standard magazine and 13 plus 1 with the included extended mag. The definitive concealed carry pistol is here. The Hellcat from Springfield Armory gives you the capacity to defend. We're listening to America First with Sebastian Gorka, former strategist to President Donald J. Trump. Can you be a man and a fat slob? No, you can't. you got to be fit. Are you fit? Are you carrying a spare tire? Have you given up on getting back to your fighting weight? For 20 years, I tried to lose extra pounds. I lost a bit, and I'd always regain it. I kind of gave up. And then I met Dr. Ashley Lucas and her amazing team at my PhD weight loss, and I lost 42 pounds. I am down to a size 36 pair of jeans. I haven't been that since my 20s. If I can do it, anyone can. You know me. I've got a wicked sweet tooth, and I love my fried food. No stupid calorie counting, no pills to pop, no starvation diet just a system of five meals a day that helps you burn the fat find out for yourself you won't regret it i promise you call her amazing team on 864-644-1900 myphdweightloss.com just the before and after pictures should tell you everything you need to know write the number down 864-644-1900 myphdweightloss.com we're back with a whistleblower extraordinaire from the fbi kyle serafin kyle so we we You've done this, you've kind of condensed five military careers into a few years. Then you don't get your slot to be a pararescue guy. You get into the FBI, you go to Quantico, bit of a disappointment after SEER school and everything else. Um, Then you start your career. You get your creds, you get your badge, you start at the Bureau. Where did you begin? Out of the big three, you know, mission sets of the Bureau, crime, counterintelligence, and CT counterterrorism. Tell us a little bit about your time as a G-man. Well, they looked at me and they said, okay, so you've been a paramedic. You're kind of an outdoors guy. You've got some uh, background in carrying a firearm. So we're going to move you into the most indoor job possible. You're going to sit at a screen and do 10 hours a day of looking at FISA 
in a language you don't read. So I moved to Chinese counterintelligence, what the old school bureau guys call FCI, Foreign Counterintelligence. All right. I did that out of the Washington <laughs> field office. So let, let me just share, I don't think I've mentioned this on the show. So when I joined the Territorial Army in, in the UK, I was in college and I joined on a dare and I ended up in a military intelligence unit and I spoke French, English, of course, German and Hungarian. Okay. And I'm qualified now as an interrogator. That's my MOS. That's my job in the British Army and the reserves. So what did they, they what did they make me do? Oh, you speak uh, French, German, and Hungarian. You're going to be a Russian linguist. The only that language right. that's not related to any of those languages. Uh, okay, I guess it works on both sides of the Atlantic that way. Yeah, they've got the same consultants. McKinsey or something <laughs> is telling those same people. It's, it's absolutely terrible. It's so illogical. I actually had a friend who spoke fluent Russian, and so they assigned him to Indian crimes in the middle of South Dakota. <laughs> because <laughs> why not? You know, it's like... Why, well, why use the resource of a, of a trained FBI right. agent who spent two years right. in Siberia? That doesn't make any sense. All right, so w walk us through the potted history of your time in the Bureau. I spent two years pretty miserable right off the bat. Uh, you know, my first day was outstanding. It was my best day in counterintelligence because they took me in. My training agent picks me up, gives me a battering ram, and we go and we hit a door of a of a PCP dealer, of all things, in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and I uh, got my first arrest, put my first cuffs on within the first couple hours. I was one of the only guys at the field office that had a picture that was in like a rest gear as opposed to a suit for my badge picture because I came in, you know, and I was still wet from the rain that was outside and they took the picture right away and they didn't care. That's um, that was strongest day of, of my CEI career. I basically spent the next 18 to 20 months trying to get out of it and uh, eventually was able to take a transfer to what they considered to be the worst post in the bureau, but I think is the best post. And it's known as the Special Operations Group, which is a specialty surveillance unit that only goes out in the field, works out of a car, pees in a bottle, you know, eats whatever you bring with you. And you watch bad guys for eight hours a day, whether they be uh, white collar, whether they be gang or child traffickers or CT subjects, which was kind of the primary focus we had for our funding. So that's what so I did explain, for the next three years. Explain why you loved it so much and why everybody else helped, uh, hated it. I think people wanted to be where they had their name on the case and they wanted to be people that could eat a salad and wear a suit <laughs> and put an ankle holster on. And I wanted to be wherever the bad guys were, because one of the jobs that that SOG has, they are the highest probability of getting into an adverse action with the with the bad guys because they're out there in the streets. And so there's a the potential of engaging with somebody who's trying to carjack you, which I had happen two or three times where, you know, somebody tries to open your door and get in your car while you're sitting there because it's running and they can't see in it. And a carjacking the a wrong car. That, that is a, that's one of the IQ tests. Do not carjack the car that's full of armed federal agents. Correct. Yeah, that's a definite no-go. Uh, but yeah, most people didn't want to do that. They wanted to be the one who ran a case and got to run their own schedule. And I liked being able to work random cases and see all kinds of weird stuff. And so I was in Maryland and I was in Southeast DC and I was in Anchorage, Alaska, and I was in Pensacola, Florida. And we traveled all over the country and we get set down on what they considered at the time priority CT subjects, counterterrorism subjects, everything from white supremacists to jihadis. And it gave me a really good view of what the Bureau is and what it isn't running down in that space, which is kind of fun, you know, but uh, you have the, at least the possibility of doing the real criminal investigator work, which is what you see in the movies, the guys yeah. following guys around and looking at the bad guys and taking yeah. pictures and, you know, that kind of stuff. So how did you become an FBI whistleblower, Kyle? What happens? I spent five years in D.C. thinking this is the worst place in the world. I don't want to be in D.C. if I can help it. So I took a post. My two options, I was trying to get to Shelby, Montana, which is nowhere. 
It's like up on the border and nobody knows where it is. And I ended up in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is the other border and nobody knows where that is either. And uh, I thought, great. I asked them, they gave me an opportunity. Do you want to work public corruption or work Indian crimes? And I said, put me on the res. So I drove 100 miles to go to work on the res, and I thought I was getting out of the political heat. But right at that time, this was uh, in September of 2021, there's an email that goes around. First of all, they tell us we're going to be mandated to get a uh, COVID vaccine, which was a no-go. I'm a pro-life Catholic, and I went to Donald Trump's rally and you know saw him at the March for Life, and it's like that was a no-go for me. And the second piece of it was is they told us that they were going to investigate parents at school board meetings. And uh, and I went straight to Congress with it. And so those happened within about I, three I gotta weeks of each other. I got to ask you the question, when, you know, when they're targeting Catholics, you know, and when you – I'm just curious. When your supervisory special agent or whoever it is comes in the room and says, we're going to surveil parents at school board meetings, are they doing that with a straight face? Are they, are they saying, I'm sorry, we have to do this? I mean, how does that happen inside the Bureau? Uh, the person who sent me the email was incredulous that it was happening. In fact, I walked by a hallway conversation between two supervisors, and they said, hey, did you see this email? As I go walking by it, I go, I don't know what you're talking about, so probably not. And he said, well, I'll send it to you. And so they sent it to me. They were incredulous, but nobody wanted to do anything about it. Yeah. Because the number one rule when you work for the FBI is don't embarrass the FBI. Right. Um, but as I told you, week one wasn't that impressive. It didn't get much to the point where I thought, man, if I lose this job, my life is over. And I'd had other jobs. I was 35 when I joined the Bureau. So I looked around and I talked to my wife about it. And I just said, I'm probably going to lose my job, but this has to be exposed. And, uh, and I'm not going to get this shot. And I'm probably going to lose my job over that, too. And she said, you're always going to be able to find a way to make a living. I'm not worried about it. Mind you, I have three children at that point. Yeah. And, you know, we have a fourth now. And the whole point of it was is that I don't want my kids growing up in a world where someone doesn't just, you know, throw the flag when a federal agency like the FBI starts trotting on civil liberties. So that was you, pretty easy. You are a brave man. I'm going to ask you next how you got those values. Uh, please support this man. Listen to this man, Carl Serafin. PHKyleSerafin.com. Follow him at Kyle Serafin. And please subscribe right now to his podcast, The Kyle Serafin Show. Don't forget to follow us if you enjoy the content we provide for you. We're everywhere uh, on social media. Just look for Seb Gorka or Sebastian Gorka on Truth Social, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Parler, Getter, Telegram. You can watch us on your Roku, your Fire Stick device, or on the Salem News Channel app. And don't forget, my content, buy me exclusive at sebastiangorka.substack.com with direct access to me as well. That's my whole name is one word, sebastiangorka.substack.com. This is the Manhood Hour. On this, MyPillow's 20-year anniversary with over 80 million MyPillows sold, Mike Lindell wants to thank you by giving you the lowest price in history on their MyPillows. You will receive a queen-size MyPillow for just $19.98, regular price $69.98, and just $10 more for a king-size. You will receive deep discounts on all MyPillow products, such as bed sheets, mattress toppers, pet beds, mattresses, my slippers, and so much more. This is the time to try out some of their other amazing products you've had your eye on. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio podcast square, and use promo code GORKA to receive this amazing offer on the queen-size MyPillow for $19.98, or call 800 829 this offer comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. It's time to start getting the quality sleep you deserve. Go to MyPillow.com, promo code G-O-R-K-A, or call 800-829-8468 today. MyPillow.com, code Gorka. 
on the side of the U.S. Constitution. America first. Louder, Alex. Louder. Oh, my gosh. That takes me back. It's like a time machine. The show that made Michael Douglas a star, the streets of San Francisco with Carl Malden. Manly men, maybe fictional. Let's talk to real manly man. But first, if you enjoy the show, make sure you are supporting those who make it possible. This is an NPR. We don't get half a billion dollars from you, the poor taxpayer, every year. This is a for-profit, free-market enterprise venture supported by great patriots, friends of President Trump like Mike Lindell, who's celebrating 20 years of my pillow. That's crazy. The pillow that never gets hot, never loses shape. He sold 81 million of them. Get yours today. A very special offer on the queen size. But did you know Mike's got more than 200? Yeah, 200 now. Other items on his webpage made by Americans here in America for you. Use my name for up to 66% off from the mattress toppers, the pajamas, the pet beds. Killian and Leia, my Belgian shepherds, love the MyPillow pet beds. On and on and on. The sheepskin line slippers. Go to MyPillow.com, code Gorka, or call them up. Don't buy that Chinese garbage on Amazon, 800-829-8468. That's 800-829-8468, mypillow.com, promo code G-O-R-K-A. So you do a crazy thing. There's tens of thousands of people working at the Bureau, and you decide to trailblaze for you know, a few dozen who say, no, this is wrong. This is against. We are, we are not a Gestapo. I'm going to be a whistleblower. I'm going to tell Congress. Uh, it still sickens me that there are so few of you um, why did you do that? You know, let's talk about where did you get your values? Who was your role model for you in life when it comes to being a man and for the courage that you have been clearly demonstrating for the last couple of years? Who was that person? That's my dad, 100%. Like so many young men, uh, you know, my dad was my was my model of masculinity. My dad was always digging holes. My dad had a white-collar job, but he came from a very blue-collar background. He grew up in a very small town in um, in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, which is maybe 5,000 people at the time, he said. Uh, lost his dad at a very young age, and he told me when we were really little that the only thing he really wanted to do was be a good dad in his life, and he was that. Um, he was a radio executive. He ran. He managed uh, the marketing departments of Major League Sports, so he was at the Texas Rangers, and he was at the, the Casey Royals, and talked to David Koresh for hours and hours when he was working in radio and doing others. I mean, he had all these strange things. He was at, you know, every day of the Patty Hearst trial. I mean, he just had a front row seat to history. But at the end of the day, my dad was always just like the best baseball coach, the best soccer coach, the best basketball coach. He didn't know how to swim until he was in an adult, but he was the best swim coach. He'd scream at me. He was the only guy I could hear when I was underwater and I was racing. You could hear nothing else. It would just be like swishing water. And then you just hear like, go. You know, and you just would send it, and I'd go, "Oh God, I better get going." <laughs> you know, my dad's on the other end of that pool, so. Uh, and you said yeah, he was, was digging. Him. He would like to dig holes, so he was a handyman. Yeah, like it's like the seraphim legend that, like, whenever you had a picture of my dad, he was like calloused hands from shovel work, and he was always digging a hole. When it's not always clear what the hole was for, he was digging a trench to fix a water main, or he was putting in a sprinkler system, or he was burying a tree, or whatever it was. Um, but he's always been really handy. I have the same thing. I, I you know, I work on my own cars. Uh, I've always done all my own electrical work, my own uh, plumbing. I redid all my own bathrooms when we were in Virginia. And it, you know, it came from my dad. It's like, I don't know how to do this, but uh, I'll figure it out. We had a lot of those like plumbing for dummies, electrical for dummies books in the garage when I was a kid. And, uh, and I was always messing up his workbench. 
which is always funny. Uh, now that I look at it, it drives me nuts. But I used to take it's his tools funny. and not put them back where they go. I just met a guy who, when, when talking about, you know, judging other men, especially when they're interested in his daughter, whenever he's at his house, he'd say, where's your workbench? And if he doesn't have a workbench, and if the man doesn't own a vice, that's not a real man. Kyle, tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about your, um, the values of your father. Think of the words, the adjectives. What are the values that he demonstrated to you that you said, ah, that's what I have to be? Give us some words. So hard work. Um, my dad told me that there was no job you could do sitting down. That was a real job. So I think the work that he did, even though he sat down at work, he didn't even really consider that work. The real work was when he was squatting outside and digging a hole, things like that. Um, loyalty. Uh, and then my father is a, uh, is a Catholic lifelong Catholic. So, um, humility is a big thing with him and, uh, and honesty and integrity. And he always told me that, uh, if you want to be successful in life, you have to be empathetic. And I'm not sure that I'm as good at that as I'd like to be. I'm more sympathetic. I can see people and I know when they're in pain, but I don't feel their pain the way that I think he does. He's much more empathic than I am. Um, but I ended up marrying into that kind of quality. So my wife is. So I don't know. You know, he's been married for 42 years. They've had rough roads like many people and were separated for a couple of years and came back. And I always saw him as, you know, he always provided for my mother. He always took care of us. He always put kids first. And so he knew what the most important things were in the world. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a successful career. But, uh, you know, your legacy is never how many hours you worked or how many days right. you, you spent in the office. It's like how many baseball games did you make it to? Yeah. So I always thought those – I don't know if you remember these. The 90s movies, they always showed, like, the dad that worked too hard and he, he missed the son's big yeah. game. And stuff. Yeah. Like My dad was never that guy. Right. And my dad was an executive for sports teams. But every single game that was important, he was there for my swim meets. You know, he was there for the championships. He was always Empathy. There. Uh, I'm going to have to work on that one. But the rest, I got it. This isn't a job sitting down doing this to get paid for that. That's crazy. We're talking to Carl Serafin coming to you from the ReliefFactor.com studios. Relief Factor, pain relief that works, pain relief that's real, pain relief that is liberating over a million Americans right now, me included. Yes, I had a low back pain issue that plagued me for nine years, almost a decade. I took Relief Factor. And two weeks later, I was pain-free. And I'm still pain-free more than four and a half years later that should be you that could be you find out today order the three-week quick starter pack at relieffactor.com it'll be at your door in three days or less take it morning and evening like i do and i promise you dr g's guarantee by the end of those three weeks you will know whether it works for you like it works for me and over a million of your fellow americans call right now 1-800-4-RELIEF that's 1-800-4-RELIEF or just go to relieffactor.com relieffactor.com you owe it to yourself to find out go today relieffactor.com A man, a legend, a legal immigrant, Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Another 53 weeks till the election. Uh, Can it get worse? Oh, yes, it can. Under Joseph Biden, you know it's going to get worse. Do you have a plan B? I do. It's with the biggest and best in the business. It's my Patriot Supply. Do you understand that the local grocery stores have less than 72 hours worth of stock Yeah, that's it. After that, you are on your own. And next time, it may not simply be baby formula that we run out of. If the stock room is empty, if the shelves are bare, how are you going to feed your family beyond those 72 hours? 
It's your duty. It's your job as a father, as a husband, as a grandfather. Join me. Patriot, my Patriot Supply has one month survival ration kits that last for 25 years and provide you with 2,000 calories a day. Right now, you get 25% off if you go to my website, preparewithgorka.com. Never be in a position where you can't feed your loved ones. Preparewithgorka.com. As they say, it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Preparewithgorka.com. Go today. So, um, Kyle, if we're going to push back on the insanity, this, you know, labeling of toxic masculinity, if we're going to win back classic conceptualizations of what it means to be a man, you're a father. Talk to us about the the items that we need to put on a a minimal uh, curriculum for young boys. So you talk about 10, 11, 12-year-olds. What do young boys need to learn as a bare minimum so that we provide them with the basis for being a true man? I think that we need to have young boys learn classical culture. They need to know what values that and how we got there. So I, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, I, I went through religious education. I went through public schools, but the religious education was always better. It was uh, because it was grounded in a foundation of Christianity. And it let us know that, you know, there actually is a right and a wrong, like this moral relativism that we deal with. I think that's the one thing that's got to go. You, it, not everything is okay. It's okay for things to be bad. It's okay for you to be wrong. It's okay for you not to get a trophy. It's okay for a little bit of bullying, to be honest with you. I think that it's not part of the curriculum. It's just sort of part of life. That, well, uh, you, not have everybody to, you have is to be learn nice to how to deal with it. That's correct. And men, here's the thing. Men provide guardrails for other men. And if you don't, then you end up with, uh, you know, a 45-year-old you know, soft soy boy type that gets blasted in the face for the first time when he's out with his family in somewhere really dangerous like a riot because he didn't realize that protest could go sideways. And if you've never seen that there are physical consequences for screwing up, that's the upside to it. Um, You know, that's the upside to bullying is that you actually learn, hey, this is a bad situation. This is a personality type that is going the wrong way. A lot of this stuff is intangible. And it just comes from learning that uh, it's not always safe. And that you're responsible for yourself, that someone's not going to come save you, that it's up to us. And if we could actually put that back into schools, I don't know how you teach, you know, responsibility and personal, uh, personal responsibility and the fact that you should have self-reliance. These are kind of the things that, uh, that men historically learned. And now they're, I don't even know what they're learning, code? Uh, like, code is great once you know how to do basic math and you know how to yeah, sit you, there and measure something. If you can't change a tire on a car, then uh, coding's not going to get you very far. Well, you know what? I saw here. This is a funny thing. I did a ride along before I joined the bureau and I went out with this uh, Austin PD cop. And the short version of it is we pull over this gal who's sitting on the side of the road and we come out and we go, is everything OK? She says, no, I'm out of gas. And we said, OK, did you just stop running? And she says, no, the uh, the range says zero on the computer. So I just pulled over and turned off the engine. And she and she had two boys in the car that were in their like teens, like 19, 20 years old, something like that. They didn't have the wherewithal to say, hey, we just drive to the gas station and see if we make it there because there's probably some range built in. That common sense is something that you can't teach necessarily as school, but it's so important. When when you witnessed what you witnessed inside the bureau, when you see what they've done and, you know, from the transgender insanity to the everybody gets a prize are you long or short on America? Are you an optimist or a pessimist that we can rebuild the values in, in, the, in the, the men of our civilization that need to be there, Kyle? Um, both. So in the short term, I think it's going to get real spicy. Or as uh, this gal that I wrote a plane with the other day said, it might get Western. 
and and that would be okay. That it happens every every four turnings if you follow those sort of things. Oh yeah, every eighty ba- ba- years or so. Bannon's, think- Bannon's the fo- fourth turning, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So. Uh, you know, every every 80 years or so, every 100 years or so, things get rough, and we're going to probably see some rough times. But that's going to forge much stronger young men, probably like my son is too. He's going to grow up tougher than maybe I did because things are going to be harder on him. But at least some of us have to hold the line and be able to pass these traditional values down of, you know, it's okay to build some muscle. It's okay to be strong and fast and know how to cut up a deer and know how to go navigate and how to set a trap and how to shoot a gun and build a rifle and how to sight things in. Like, this is not stuff that we should be turning men away from. And, you know, I heard a, a kid, this Gen Z kid, who said he's on six bottles of pills and that guns are tacky. It's tacky. like, well, guns are what civilized the world for you, young man. And uh, if, you are, if you're so far removed from what food is, which is that it used to be, men would go find food. It was the thing that was running around in the woods or in the fields, and then they brought that home. It doesn't live in a grocery store. It lives out somewhere in nature. And uh, we're probably going to end up getting back to that for a little while. And that, that's OK, too. Uh, you know, I think we'll come back stronger. Human beings have gone through many, many things that have been difficult and plague and famine and and uh, and floods, I think, is at a, a crucial point, but but not irredeemable. Yeah, it's um, you know, I'm a gun guy. I know you have a very good taste in firearms. One of the proudest moments and my, my son is a crack shot. Um we we have fun going to the range. We have competitions between each other, and it gets a little spicy at times as to who who's winning and whose whose group is the smallest. But one day we went to the 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 gun fair, the gun show, and I think he was fifteen maybe, and I bought he, this is you know the time for his first rifle, and I bought him all the parts. I bought all the parts for an AR fifteen. You know the upper, the lower, the trigger group, the stock, everything else. And we took him home and. Um, I said to him, let's, let's build the AR-15. And he says, no, Dad. And he closed himself, locked himself in his room, you know, went on YouTube uh, and just built it by himself. He put all the bits together, and uh, we still have that functioning AR-15. So, yeah, not tacky. It's a, a skill one needs to know. We're talking to Kyle Serafin, host of the Kyle Serafin Show. PH, follow him, Kyle Serafin, on uh, social media. And he also has a Give, Send, Go. We'll discuss that in a minute. Give, Send, Go.com slash Kyle Serafin. I'm Sebastian Gorka. This is America First, coming to you from the ReliefFactor.com studios just outside the insalubrious, fetid, rank, malodorous swamp that is Washington, D.C. Relief Factor, it's real. It works. It is liberating over a million Americans right now, me included. But it's not just me. It's people like Kent from Arkansas. Listen for a moment to Kent's story. I have been taking Relief Factor for about three months, and I'm amazed at how much my pain has decreased in rainy weather. I would be in ridiculous pain and just wanting to crawl in bed and cry. At this writing, it has been raining all day, and I feel just fine. Before Relief Factor, I never had a day when something didn't hurt. Now, most days, I have a great quality of life. Thanks, Relief Factor. That should be your story. It could be your story. Find out today there's only one way, but it's super easy. Order the three-week quick starter pack at relieffactor.com for just $19.95. It'll be at your door in three days or less. Take it morning and evening like I do, and I promise you, Dr. G's guarantee. By the end of those three weeks, you will know 
whether it works for you like it works for me, Kent, and over a million of your fellow Americans. Call today, 1-800-4-RELIEF. That's 1-800-473-5433, or just go to relieffactor.com. That's relieffactor.com. We define. We define. No violence, no hate speech, just happy warriors on America First. From fictional law enforcement, Starskin Hutch, to real law enforcement, our guest on the Manhood Hour is Kyle Serafin, a courageous man, a man who's kind of led the way with the FBI whistleblowers. If you want to support them, individuals who have... The stories of some of them are just horrific. What was done to them in terms of uh, losing their income as they have small children, as they've just moved home. Uh, please go to givesendgo.com slash Kyle Serafin. That's givesendgo.com slash Kyle Serafin. Serafin is S-E-R-A-P-H-I-N. Kyle, um, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. Uh, let's do a little mano a mano, man to man. In the last couple of minutes we have... Would you just send a message to men inside the Bureau, men inside the DOJ, men inside the military, men inside our intelligence community who are seeing bad things, are witnessing bad things happen, but haven't taken any action and haven't done what you have done? Would you talk to those men for just a minute or two? You laughed earlier when I said that, that the reason why I got involved in this in the first place was my evaluation, where would I be 10,000 years ago? So I would encourage that the men that are sitting in the law enforcement entities, it doesn't matter if you're state, federal, or local, honestly, it's not just the FBI, and certainly those who are in the DOD seeing the same things. I'd like you to project, where are you going to be with your retirement? So you get the pension, you know, you get the, uh, the brass ring, you get the gold watch, whatever, and, and you're done. And where are you going to spend it? Do you want to spend your existence in tyranny? And many of you see that tyranny developing. There's no question in my mind that you see it. You all complain about it. When you get together and have a beer, the first thing that happens is a couple of FBI agents, they dump on the bureau, the bad supervisors, the bad culture, the bad cases that are being worked, the political ideology that has captured it. So you have to just decide, do you want to retire into tyranny and hope that you can get away from it and then you'll die before it comes after you? And then you decide whether or not your kids are going to live under that too. And if that's not acceptable, then you got to do something about it. And that's something can be as easy as bring it to me or Garrett O'Boyle or Steve Friend. We actually have channels to get it to members of Congress so it can get public and you're covered and we can even willander it for you. We don't even need you to tell your name. I don't want your name out there. I don't need you to lose your career over it. I already did. I'm happy to. So we're providing you a, a potential, a vetted source, people who know who I am. Nobody has attacked any of the things that we've said, by the way. No. Isn't that interesting, Seb? They always attack the messenger, the leftists. They come after the messenger, but not the message. Yeah. So if they want to share this stuff, whether it be that uh, there's Catholics that are going, you know, being infiltrated and that you've got sources inside a Catholic church or going into a mosque or going into a synagogue or that they're going into a school or whatever it is that you know is going on, that they're making up fake white supremacists or going after guys like Mike Glover, who's an American hero and was a Green right. Beret and has a company. It doesn't matter what it is because these have all come to me. These are all stories that came to me that we've exposed. Well, um, we I'm your guy. Just send it to me. 
We we salute you. We just salute Garrett Boyle. We salute Steve Friend. We salute you, Carl Serafin, because you are all true men. And more important than that, you're true patriots. Give sendgo.com slash Carl Serafin. Support them today. You've been listening to The Manhood Hour with me, Sebastian Gorka. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, keep your head on the swivel. Watch your six. Hold the line. Never give up. Never give in. And stay frosty. continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The world will little note or long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... America First with Sebastian Gorka. Welcome, dear friends. Greetings. Welcome to the America First show. Don't move. Don't go anywhere for the next three hours. We have an incredible show for you today. We'll have the lead IDF spokesman, Colonel Kornreikus, with us, Carrie Lake, Kyle Serafin, FBI whistleblower, my former colleague from the White House, Tom Rose, and so much more. Uh, Jeff, where do my stories come from, my real-life stories from outside the studio? The post office, walking the dog, or 7-Eleven. All right. I'm going to add a new location. This is location number four. This is the veterinary clinic near my home. And I'm going to tell you a story that happened to me on Saturday. First, words. Words matter. Have you ever stopped to consider the meaning of phrases that mm, too often we just take for granted? Let's look at the word civilization and what civilization we live in. Civilizations are real. Cultures and societies in Asia are very different from those of Africa. The The way things work in Afghanistan are very, very different from the way things work in Australia. Anybody denies that? And they're a cretin. Our civilization, the West, is Judeo Christian. But have have you ever stopped to define, to think about what that word, that phrase, Judeo-Christian civilization, actually stands for? Now, I could talk about that for literally hours, if not days. My first degree was philosophy or theology, but I'm not sure it would make for scintillating radio. But let's just talk about a couple of the key elements of our civilization and why the war in the Middle East, the birthplace of our civilization should matter to everyone who lives in the West. 
Yes, the roots of our civilization lie in ancient Greece. First with their philosophers, the Greek love of wisdom and the understanding of how to apply human reason. But the religion of the ancient Greeks was very different. It was anthropomorphic and it was polytheistic. It was multiple gods on Mount Olympus who looked a lot like us. Individual gods who were capricious, jealous, and selfish, just like their worshippers down on earth. And yes, the second influence outside of ancient Greece was ancient Rome that helped shape our civilization with its system of predictable laws and its senate and its political system. But it too was a very different culture, a brutal culture as the mass slaughter of the games in the Colosseum or the judicial murder of crucifixions demonstrates amply. As a result, Greece and ancient Rome aren't influences enough on Western civilization. They mean nothing without the influence of Israel. And the act of ultimate love by a Jewish carpenter who was nailed to one of those Roman crosses. Why? First, because the Jews were the chosen people of God. And instead of believing in multiple deities who were just pale reflections of themselves, they believed in one God, the true God. And they actually had a relationship with him what we call the covenant. The ancient Greeks and the Romans, they had no meaningful relationship with their gods. All they had to do is obey. Beyond that monotheistic reality, there was the unique nature of Jewish theology. When the Bible speaks in Genesis of man made in the image of God, imago dei, that isn't some poetic flourish. That is the actual foundation of our civilization. Ask yourself a simple question. Why do you have rights at all? Because the government gave them to you? Or because your rights are divine, derived from your being made in the image of he who made you? In fact, just ask the founding fathers of our nation. There's a reason we have unalienable rights, and they knew it. And that's why they mention the Creator in our founding document, and they do so with a capital C. So, to that Republican student leader from Stanford uh, who asked me in the Q&A after I spoke in California recently to a group of MAGA patriots about why the war in Israel matters, your advice that we should just pray for the Israelis and do nothing more because that's not our war. You, sir, are dead wrong. And your assertion to me afterwards, which was shocking, that we don't live in a Judeo-Christian civilization. It's simply a Christian civilization. And that Jesus was just an ethnic Jew couldn't be more wrong. Why don't you just listen to the Messiah himself who told us, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, 
but I am the fulfillment of that law. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Look it up. Oh, by the way, Jesus, who was a Jew, who worshipped at the temple all his life. We are one civilization. And this Saturday, it was reinforced to me by a Jewish American. I was at the vet's clinic with my Belgian shepherd, Killian, who's sick. As I was waiting, an elderly gentleman with his 14-year-old German shepherd recognized me from my Newsmax show. We chatted at length about what happened on October the 7th in Israel and what needs to happen to the savages of Hamas. This man, Shlomo, was born in Israel to Jewish parents who escaped Hungary before the war and moved to the reborn nation of Israel in 1948. At the end of our chat, Shlomo tapped his pocket and he said, I'm ready for them. If they try and kill me, I'll take a few of those bastards with me. And he smiled. I smiled too, and I tapped at my hip and I said, Shlomo, I'm ready too. We are one civilization. This is one fight, and we are one team. As the jihadists, as the fundamentalist Islamists say, First we come for the Saturday people, the Jews, and then we come for and kill the Sunday people, the Christians. We need to wake up. This isn't some event occurring 8,000 miles away that doesn't matter to us. The capacity to slaughter babies, not accidentally because of a piece of shrapnel from a bomb that hits a military target, flies to the wrong direction. No, the deliberate targeting of women, children, and infants is the work of the devil. And we need to choose a side, the side of our civilization. Please support. There's one charity I really like. That is uh, healthcareforisrael.org slash donate. It's the B'nai Zion Medical Center. We're going to play for you an amazing thank you from its director. If you go to healthcareforisrael.org slash donate, you're directly helping the Israeli families who are suffering. God bless you all. That's the beginning. Stay tuned for more. If you enjoy the show, make sure you are subscribed. Never miss any of our long-form chats. Go to whichever podcast platform you prefer. Plug in my name, Sebastian Gorka, America First. Leave a five-star review. Share the links with your friends. And if you want to be safe again, wear this T-shirt or put this yard sign outside your home. Trump 2024, sebgorkastore.com. We'll be back in a moment. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.